This podcast is brought to you by the Reform Witness Committee of Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Walker, Michigan. It is our goal to spread our distinct Protestant Reformed views based on the Word of God and the Reformed Confessions. We hope that this message is edifying to you. The following is a sermon preached on a Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day. For more sermons, see our sermon audio page. Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. The inspired writer in Hebrews chapter 1 emphasizes the deity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God who made the worlds, verse 2, and especially one who is greater than the angels. Verse 6, and again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels he saith, and maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire, but unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Having said that, he moves to chapter 2, where he speaks of Jesus being made a little lower than the angels. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to His own will. For unto the angels hath He not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the Son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels, and thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with honor and glory, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect, through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, I am the children which God hath given me. 
For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. We read that far in God's inspired word. Turn now to the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 16. Lord's Day 16. We consider this morning Lord's Day 16, question and answers 40 through 43, and we'll leave 44 for next time, the Lord willing. Question and answers 40 to 43. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because with respect to the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. Why was He also buried? Thereby to prove that He was really dead. Since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins, but only an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead and buried with him. And that so the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Let me stop there. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, this morning we consider the sobering reality of death. Christ's death mainly. But we begin with our death. Our death from which Christ's death delivers. This is the death that we deserve. And to think truthfully about this death that we deserve, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 and remember God's word of truth regarding man and his death. Genesis 2.17 He said to man, He said to Adam and all mankind in Adam, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat thereof, 
For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. To mankind, God said, to disobey me, to sin, is to bring death upon yourself. That will be your judgment. That's the truth. And you know the history of the serpent and Satan in that serpent tempted Eve with the lie, thou shalt not surely die, and many other lies with it. And Eve ate of the fruit of the tree and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And in the day that Adam ate, that mankind ate of that tree, in that day, as God's Word said, He died. God's Word was proven true. Satan's a lie. For children, that should make you think. And beloved, we should be thinking. Adam and Eve did not fall over immediately upon eating the fruit as though they were poisoned and physically ceased to live. That wasn't what happened. In fact, Genesis 5.5, a a couple of chapters later, says that Adam lived for 930 years. And so, from an outward point of view, if you were to look upon the physical life of Adam and Eve and mankind after him, it did not look like they died very quickly at least. Did God lie? Was Satan right? Obviously not. But how so? What we find from that history is that reality of death is not merely physical death. While death includes the separation of body and soul, that death, and the separation of earthly ties so that the one who dies no longer lives here among people with whom he had relationships. And while death does mean a physical entrance of the body into the grave and decomposition, that is not merely what death is. Death includes something more that which is far worse. We must understand the reality of death. Adam and Eve, and all human beings in Adam and Eve, died in that day. Death is more than physical death. Death is separation from God. That is the greatest misery of death. As we sang in Psalm number 203, based on Psalm 73, to live apart from God is death. In the day that Adam ate thereof, he did die in this way. Adam and mankind in him fell from covenant with God, fellowship with God. God is life. They fell from life and they joined Satan who had the power of death immediately. They fell into this spiritual death and separation from God. 
And on Satan's side, Adam and Eve experienced death within them. They immediately felt it. God's judgment, which was a depravity that now seeped into their souls and filled it, they became dead in sin. A spiritual deadness immediately came in upon Adam and Eve, and then all mankind also after them. That's death. And more, under the power of Satan and his death, that spiritual deadness is supposed to continue dragging mankind not only to physically be brought to the grave, but lower, lower, to bring mankind into an eternal death of soul and body, forever separate, separate from God who is our life. That's the reality of death. That's the fullness of death. And that's what we deserve unless God delivers you from death by the death of His own Son. And for His people, the Son of God did take upon Himself our death and its fullness to bring about for us the death of death, as one Puritan put it. Believe, believe in this Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who took your death, that you might have eternal life with God. He not only, as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified, but we confess, and you must believe what you confess. It may not merely be words on your lips. It's a brief confession in the Apostles' Creed, but you confess after was crucified. Dead, you say, and buried. That's the article that we consider this morning as explained by Lord's Day 16 based upon Hebrews 2 and many other passages. Consider the doctrine of the death of Christ. First, His death. Second, His purpose. And then finally, our benefit. Christ came to die. Children, we might hear that phrase many times and we might repeat it often because it is impressed upon our memories since a young age. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died. And we may quickly fly through that confession sometimes, but we must let that settle in upon our hearts and understand it. Be struck by it. Jesus came to die. Think about that. The very purpose for which He came 
to this earth was to die. He was conceived in the womb to go to the tomb. He was born to be murdered. He inhaled his first breath in order to exhale his last. He was given a human spirit so that he might give up the ghost. His respiration through life was for his expiration at death. He didn't come to enjoy life. He came rather to die. And that's the point of Hebrews 2. The main point. The whole chapter is summed up in the words in verse 9 of this. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. The writer of Hebrews is explaining that Psalm 8 in particular when it speaks of man being made a little lower than the angels, is not merely referring to us as mankind made a little lower than the angels. But Hebrews 2, the inspired writer, is explaining Psalm 8 as a prophecy of God the Son making Himself a little lower than the angels. Why? couldn't make himself an angel. His angels were not men, mortal men that could die like men. He made himself a little lower than the angels to be our flesh and blood, mortal, so that he could die. Children, God cannot die. He who created all things cannot die. That's not a weakness. That's due to His strength. That's due to His perfection. He is the eternal, unchangeable, infinite, everlasting, immortal, invisible God. Death cannot touch the living God. But He loved us. And He has desire to save us. And the only way to save us was if God, the Son, took death. Because God Himself, as divine, cannot die. He took a nature of flesh and blood, as verse 14 says. Partakers of the flesh and blood, He Himself likewise took part of the same in order to die for us. This dying, this death, was suffering. There is a misconception sometimes about death, perhaps because people want to minimize the pain of death and make it less terrible. But there is a misconception sometimes that death is not painful, it is not suffering. That's not true. Death hurts. Jesus came, He was made a little lower than the angels, verse 9 says in Hebrews 2, 
not just for death, but to suffer for the suffering of death. Death is suffering. It's painful. Now, broadly speaking, we can say that Jesus, all His life, immediately when He was conceived in the womb, suffered death. It was dying. And that was painful. And we considered that last week already in Lord's Day 15, that all through His life He suffered death. He suffered the wrath of God, that is. Broadly speaking, even we can say on Thursday and Friday of Passion Week, Jesus suffered death. He expended Himself. He lost His blood as He was whipped, as the crown of thorns pressed upon His head, as the nails went into His hands and His feet. His life was poured out. He was suffering death, dying. Especially on the cross during those three hours of darkness, you remember. He suffered death, separation in a proper sense from God. There's a mystery there. Something horribly mysterious happened which I cannot fully comprehend, neither can you. But remember, death is separation from God, essentially. And when Jesus was dying, experiencing death on the cross, especially during those three hours of darkness. He experienced a God-forsakenness so horrible, so terrible, so deadly that we cannot imagine. A terrible loneliness came upon His soul. A tearing happened within Him. An awful separation like none other of Father against His own Son. I say mysterious because there was never a destruction of the Trinity. Father and Son and Holy Spirit were never divided. And yet, an experience of separation is far greater than we can imagine. Death. And then... And then physically too, He died. Death is that unnatural tearing apart of body and soul. And on the cross, after those three hours of darkness, Jesus gave Himself to this death as the judgment of God against sin. It was a tearing apart of His soul There was a severing, a cutting of his relationships with other earthly relationships that he had on this earth with his mother, with his mother too, with his friends, his disciples. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says, He was cut off out of the land of the living. And that was especially painful because it was the punishment of God for sin. That's his death that he suffered. The end of verse 9 gives us an illustration of this suffering of death that helps us understand it better. Hebrews 2 verse 9, that he by the grace of God should taste death. Notice that word, taste death for every man. That word taste 
we may not misunderstand to mean that Jesus sipped death. Sometimes we think of a little taste, a little bit on our tongue as a taste. That's not the meaning of the word. He took the fullness of death. He drank all of it. That's what it means that when it says He tasted death. He drank it all. Experienced it all. Here's the illustration, an illustration that this text gives us. Often Scripture, the Bible pictures the wrath of God and death as a cup of wrath. A full cup. Not of nice, pleasant tasting wine or any fruit drink, but of something very, very bitter. Even something very hot. Like liquid fire that bites and burns body and soul as it is drunk. And through His life, Jesus tasted it. And on the cross, He drank it in. This death. But he didn't leave anything in the cup. He drank all of it. And as you know, in the cup of wine, especially that which is homemade, or maybe at the bottom of a barrel of wine that is made, there are what is called dregs. Where there are bits and particles of that which makes the bottom thick. The dregs. The thickest, the most bitter, and the And the hottest part of God's wrath was in that cup. Psalm 75 calls it the dregs of God's wrath. Jesus didn't drink just some of this death, but He emptied the cup so that when He said, it is finished, it is finished. And He tipped the cup, as it were. He emptied it. But the last of God's wrath, and he died. Down to the depths he went to experience all of death. That's a historical fact. Against false religions like Islam that claims that Jesus did not die, but rather fainted, swooned, became unconscious on the cross, The Word of God declares again and again that Jesus died. He truly did die. He suffered all of death unto its end. The Catechism explains in question and answer 41 that His burial especially proves that He really died. Why was He buried also? Thereby to prove that He was really dead. Remember the history. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who loved Jesus took Jesus off the cross after his death, and they wrapped him in grave clothes and placed him in Joseph's tomb. Think about that. They who loved Jesus, who probably wished, they, they wished, not probably, they wished Jesus was still alive, would have made sure that he was dead before they put him in that tomb and sealed that tomb. But it wasn't just Joseph and Nicodemus who made sure that he was dead before they put him in the tomb. There were Roman soldiers and a Pontius Pilate who made sure that Jesus was dead and then let him be buried. Cruel Roman soldiers, you remember, took that spear and they went to the bodies of the three 
men that had been crucified on that same night, or that same day, I should say. And they broke the bones of the malefactors on both sides of Jesus in order to bring them to their death. But when they came to Jesus, it was very clear to them that He was already dead. And more, they took that spear and they pierced His side. And out came blood and water, which was to them a sign that He was indeed already dead. Pilate made sure with those soldiers that he was dead before he allowed Joseph and Nicodemus to take that body, gave them permission to bury him. That burial is proof of the historical fact that Jesus did not merely faint but he very really died. He went to the grave. There was a finality that was proven at the grave. And considering that death of Jesus Christ in the history, beloved, you may not listen merely to understand it intellectually in all its facts, though you must know it in all its facts. But there must be a sorrow, a true sorrow regarding this death of Jesus Christ. Yes, there is a Gospel, there is a good news, there is also joy, but this, this event of the death of Jesus Christ is grievous. It is even more grievous than the death of any one of our loved ones on this earth. A brother, a sister, a spouse even. And I'm not minimizing the grief and sorrow of that death. But the Son of God died. And we with our sin brought Him there. He endured the fullness of death and all its agonies because of our sin. Let's make it more specific. You and I, men, we lusted. You men, you women, you coveted. We have disobeyed our parents' children. We have been impatient with each other. We have attacked our spouses. We have proudly boasted of our accomplishments. We have been self-righteous as a church. We have been lazy. We have erred both doctrinally and, and in our life. We have been too busy and neglected our duties. We have sinned. We have sinned again and again. We deserve this death in all its fullness. And He, God the Son, would not have had to die if it were not for our sin. Zechariah 12, verse 10, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the Spirit of grace and of supplications. And when God says He will pour the Spirit upon His people, this will be the effect, He says. 
They shall look upon Me, that is, upon Jesus, whom they have pierced. It won't just be a mere intellectual understanding of it. But they shall mourn for Him. How? As one mourneth for his only Son, and shall be in bitterness for Him as one that is in bitterness for His firstborn. Why would we mourn to such a degree for the death of the Son of God? Because we have nailed Him there. That is how we must consider the death of Jesus Christ. Why was this death necessary? Catechism uses the word necessary. In the second point, I use it the word purpose. What was the purpose of Christ in taking our death? Two reasons, two explanations according to the catechism. The word justice and the word truth. They're related, but two explanations for why Jesus had to die and the purpose for His death. With respect to this truth and justice of God, the catechism says, satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death of the Son of God. First, justice. Justice demanded it. God's justice had to be satisfied. And the brief verse in Scripture that helps us clear helps us clearly is Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. Adam's sin, your sin with Adam and all your particular sins, your sins have a wage. That is, there must be a payment made. Before the judgment seat of God, a payment must be made, and that payment is death. Death in all its fullness. And so, the Son of God came to make that payment. To take on that wage and to suffer that death as our substitute. Notice the Catechism says the Son of God in particular. The Son of God. Satisfaction for our sins could be made no otherwise than by the death, not of a mere man, but of the Son of God. Yes, He had to be a man because man, remember this, catechism students, man must suffer for man's sin. A man had to die to, su to suffer for us and, and save us from death. But more, He could not only be a mere man, He had to be the very Son of God because a mere man cannot empty that cup. A mere man cannot suffer death, the dregs of death, until it was finished. A mere man cannot sustain in himself the fullness of death that we, all His people, deserve. And so it took the very Son of God with our human flesh 
to suffer its bitter dregs for justice. For justice. The Catechism says truth as well. And truth is related to justice. It's often a synonymous term in Scripture to God's justice. But the Catechism means something additional here than only the justice of God. Remember, truth in particular refers to the truth of God's Word. The truth of God's Word. With regard to the truth of God's Word, Jesus had to suffer death. We started out with that in Genesis 2.17. God said, and His Word was truth, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That's His Word of truth. Satan didn't tell the truth. God told the truth. That Word of truth must be fulfilled. Man must suffer death in its fullness. Out of love for us, the Son of God became man. Fulfilled justice in our place. And according to the truth of God's Word, to take that death for us. For every man. Did you notice that at the end of verse 9? He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Literally, for every one. That verse is misinterpreted by the Arminians, as you know. They would take every word that is translated every or all or world in the Bible to explain a universal salvation. That Jesus died for everyone head for head. It cannot mean that because of election, as we know. It cannot mean that because Scripture is clear. John 10, verse 11, Jesus said Himself, I am the Good Shepherd, and the Good Shepherd giveth His life. That means He dies for His sheep, for the sheep alone. Scripture teaches limited atonement, and it doesn't contradict itself here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But I bring up the Arminian misinterpretation because we must do polemics against Arminian ideas but that really is a distraction from the text. Why does, positively, Hebrews speak of Christ dying for everyone? It brings out a beautiful Gospel. The point that Hebrews is making, and that thrills your heart and mine, is that Christ died for each one of His elect people. Yes, He died for for all His people as a group, His whole church, that too. But when He died, He did not think of us as a mass of people generally, as, as a bunch of unnamed human beings in, in, in Reformed churches. But more than that, when Jesus died, He thought of each one of us written in the book of life. Each individual, whether 
of America or of a different country. Each individual, whether an adult or a baby who would live only for a few days in a mother's womb, each one of his people that he knew by name, he consciously died for every one of them. The death of Christ on the cross becomes very personal then. It was for you. In your place. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Voluntarily he did, for no man could take his life from him, but he gave it up into thy hands. I commend my spirit. They taunted him. They said, if you're the son of God, take yourself off the cross. And he could have by his power. But out of love for you, each of his elect people, he gave, he stayed there. And he drank the dregs. Having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. John 13, 1. For whom? For you. Each one. But for you too, who are by nature enemies. Remember. Who hated him who were the ones who brought this death upon Him at the cross. But so great was, was His love, Romans 5, 8, that God commendeth His love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the benefits of all His people are so many. So many as a result. Catechism explains the benefit of Christ's death this way. Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins. We'll stop there for now. That is the benefit of Christ's death in our place. Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins. Now the implication there is that there is a part of death we must still face. Not the fullness of death. But there is a part of death that we must still face. A painful reality that we may not minimize. It still hurts. 1 Corinthians 15 still calls death the last enemy. And when death visits, it's still painful. No matter how people might minimize it today. Death still tears apart soul and body. It still cuts off ourselves from earthly relationships and it still brings our body to the grave. We still have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But even those limited aspects of death that we must still face, the Catechism explains to us on the basis of Scripture, 
is not a satisfaction for our sins. God, who is sovereign over our death, does not bring it upon us in His wrath as punishment, as the wages of sin, as a payment, because Christ has fully done that. But rather, He has made those limited aspects of death that we must still face, He has made that death, He has transformed that death into something else. Not as punishment or for satisfaction of His justice. He has made death our servant and His servant to save us. He doesn't just conquer death, Romans 8 says. He makes us more than conquerors of death. So that He governs death, controls death as a result of Jesus' death. He controls death, our own approaching death, and the death of a spouse, a sister, a child. He controls death for our good. This is how it's for our good. The Catechism explains an abolishing of sin and a passage into eternal life. When He brings us to death, it becomes a portal, a passageway for our soul to go to glory, to be in His presence so that it is true what Jesus says since He is a resurrection and the life. In John eleven twenty six, Whosoever liveth and believeth in Me shall never die. In sweet communion, in sweet communion with Thee, I constantly abide even through the portal of death. And not just constantly abide, but my soul will enter into the presence of God to experience that presence to an even greater degree. For Psalm 16, verse 11 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life, and in Thy presence is fullness of joy. At Thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Christ's death has made our physical death a passageway to life in its fullness. And with that, an abolishing of sin. So that when we die, God uses death as our servant to remove sin completely from our souls. Never again in the way of death, never again will our old man plague us. It is fully crushed at death, obliterated in death. That's the benefit of Christ's death for us. And even those limited aspects of death, the separation of body and soul, the separation from loved ones on this earth, and the body's entrance into the grave, even that becomes temporary because of Christ's death. Temporary, beloved, 
And while it seems like a long time here on this earth that we have to endure the valley of the shadow of death, it really is brief when compared to the eternal life that is soon to be enjoyed. It's temporary. When Jesus returns, body and soul will be reunited. And He says, I come quickly. And then there will be a perfect togetherness with all of His people and with God Himself of body and soul and glory. Christ's death makes our grief and pain of death temporary. Another benefit the Catechism says further, by virtue thereof our old man is crucified. Our old man is crucified. That's a deep theological concept. But Christ's death earns for us the right to be delivered from death in all of its fullness and to understand this concept. Think about what we began with again. The fullness of death includes spiritual death in our souls, a total depravity so that we cannot do anything good. But Christ's death earns for us the right to be delivered from even that spiritual death, that deadness in sin. When Christ died, He crushed Satan's head. In principle, in crushing Satan's head, He also crushed the head of the old man, Satan's servant within our hearts. And He works by His Spirit in the hearts of each one of His people. So that at our very center, An old man no longer reigns, but a new man, the new man of Jesus Christ. He regenerates us. He places His new man, Jesus Christ does, on the throne of our hearts, and we are no longer under the bondage of Satan and his spiritual death. Or as the Catechism says, So the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us. Beloved, if you are a child of God saved by grace, and you are a believer, and you may not say, I cannot serve God with good works. Period. You may say, I cannot of myself. But you must say that according to the new man, I can and I will by His power. Because if you confess the death of Christ, the benefit that He gives to every single one of His people is also the conquering of the old man, so that he no longer reigns in your heart. 
And finally, that which Hebrews 2 contributes, the benefit of Christ's death, is a removal of the fear of death. One of Satan's weapons is fear. A couple of weeks ago, we considered that fear. He always wants to plant fear in the hearts of God's people. He picks up a sword. The sword of death. And he cannot bring it down upon us in all its fullness. Satan cannot. But he will take that sword of death to try to scare us with it. To prick us with it. He is like the executioner. Raising it above his head to bring it down. He wields it like a guillotine. And he makes us feel as though we are underneath that guillotine. He is like that abuser raising his fists and his knife to slay us. To threaten us with death. And he says to us, doesn't he? You hear him in your consciousness. Because of your sin, you're going to die. And I'm going to take you down with me to hell. You're mine. And we tremble. And so I call you this morning to look not at that sword that He wields over your heads because you cannot bring it down in His fullness upon you. To look up higher to Jesus Christ who has died and is risen again. And since He has taken the fullness of death upon Himself, fear not. Only believe. Death cannot come against you, but can only be for you. Be persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For He died to give us life eternal. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. It is our hope that it was edifying to you. Please subscribe to our podcast. We publish daily meditations, Heidelberg Catechism Lord's Day sermons on Wednesdays, and topical podcasts on Fridays. You can find more information about us at our website, hopeprchurch.org, and you can email us with any questions or feedback at hoperwc at gmail.com. Thank you.